Well, this morning, i got to get through that stuff quick because we got three chapters this morning, Genesis 42, 43, and 44. And I'm going to tell you, a wiser pastor would have never have done this, all right? I realized that this week. This was not smart. Nobody's ever accused me of bringing the, the sharpest tool in the shed, though. But, but when I looked at this earlier as I was looking through Genesis, uh, this really has to be told in one sweeping look. And I'm going to leave out the best part. So... If you say this morning, this ain't no good, we'll come back next week, all right? Give me another shot next week, because it gets really good when we see the reconciliation of, of, of Joseph with his brothers next week in chapter 45. But look, in fact, you know, all this, I was, recall last night uh, that the pastor who decided he was going to preach through the entire Bible in one sermon, he's going to bring each book of the Bible and make a few comments and work his way through. He got to the book of Isaiah. He said, now we've come to the book of Isaiah. What are we going to do with Isaiah? Guy three rows back, stood up and said, well, he can have my seat because I'm out of here. And uh, there were a few people last night that were on the verge of that, I think, as we worked our way through these three chapters. We will not be able to read all of this this morning. And I want to encourage you, part of my prayer when I preach is that it gives you an appetite to study the word of God on your own. I'm hoping that, that what I do here on these Sunday mornings is not the main course for you. This is just an hors d'oeuvre that whets your appetite to say, I've got to go read that for myself. All right, so if you want to get the fullness of this, you've got, you got to go and read this on your own. You've got to get alone in God's word and let God speak to you. It's a powerful, powerful story. I, can't, I don't have time this morning to point out all the details, but I want us to see what God is doing in the life of these brothers. You know, we've seen Joseph. The context here is that Joseph is the beloved son of the father. He's been rejected by the family. He's been sold into slavery. He's been left for dead. And what, God, what does God do? God raises him up, second in command over all of Egypt. He's essentially become the prime minister. He is, in many ways, the author of life and death you got to come to Joseph and if you'll heed his words if you'll live in obedience to what he tells you to do guess what you'll have the opportunity to live through the tribulation that is coming does that sound like somebody we know that if he that he is the author of life and death you'll come to him follow his word you can live through the tribulation that is certainly coming so we've seen what God is doing in Joseph's life great story but the question is what about these brothers because God has made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that I'm gonna take them out into Egypt and I'm gonna bring them back and they're gonna be this great nation so God's got to do something with this dysfunctional family and so you're looking at these boys you say that's great with Joseph but what about these brothers? Are they too far gone? Have, have they so messed up in their sin and disobedience that they've gone beyond the grace and the mercy of God? Because remember, these brothers, they, they, they're incredibly immoral men. They're mass murderers. Remember what they did with Shechem. Uh, they're, they're immoral guys. They, they've involved themselves in all kinds of sexual immorality. They're mean. They're liars. They're thieves. They sold their brother down the river. These guys are the worst of the worst. And yet, guess what God is going to do? God is going to bring them to a place of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and obedience. Because that's what God is able to do. And who gets the glory? Who gets the credit for it all? It's kind of like, you know, if you, the old saying, if you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? You know he didn't get there by himself, right? He had some help. If these brothers, if these guys 
if these guys find themselves walking in obedience to God's word and living in faith and repentance, what do we know? We know God's been working in a big way, amen. And how many of you would have that same testimony this morning? <laughs> amen. That were it not for the grace of God in my life, where would I be? So we see a beautiful, this is how, how God deals with these brothers in so many people's lives. This is how God deals with us. This is how God brings us in. He is often called the hound of heaven. And he's after us. And you can run, but you can't hide. When he's after you, he's going to get you. And he's after, he's after these brothers. So let's pray together, then we'll, we'll hit the highlights here. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we gather around the campfire of your word this morning to receive truth and warmth and life. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and wills to obey. And God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning, they're walking in sin and disobedience, they've never really been confronted with the depth of who they are as a sinner who stands condemned. God, I pray that you would work in a similar fashion to how you did with these brothers. And God, if you find it necessary that you might, as you did with these brothers, rough them up a bit, to deal harshly with them, to bring them to an understanding of the depth of their sin and their need of forgiveness. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see as it relates to these brothers and God bringing about reconciliation is that God takes the initiative God, it's always this way. Salvation from beginning to end, it doesn't matter whose life it is, it always begins with God. And guess who it always ends with? God. And guess who's always in the middle of it? God. It's all God's work. There's probably no more powerful story in all of God's word of the efficacious nature of grace. And so look in chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. Now Jacob saw that there was a grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? Don't you love that? You ever as a parent said that to your kids? Why are y'all just standing there looking at each other? Do something. And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Which is really the theme of the entire book of Genesis. That God has provided salvation so that you would live and not die. But here is Jacob, and he's looking around at his boys, and there's a famine in the land, and he's heard that there's food down in Egypt. But, but don't, listen, these brothers, they knew all that. These brothers knew they're getting hungry. They knew they were running out of food, and they knew that there was grain down in Egypt. But they don't want to go to Egypt. They're staring at each other. They're looking at each other. They don't want to go to Egypt. Why don't they want to go to Egypt? Because Egypt reminds them of their sin. Egypt reminds them of what they did to their brother. Egypt reminds them that they are guilty. See, all of us in our life, we have what I like to call guilt words. Words that remind us of a place, a time, or event that remind us of our past guilt and our past sin and our past shame. And we don't want to think about those places and we don't want to think about those times and we don't want to think about those names because of the feelings they conjure up in us of our guilt and our sin. And so these brothers, they don't want to deal with Egypt. But guess what? God forces them. You're going to have to confront who you are. You're going to have to deal with your sin. 
And so they're forced to go down to Egypt. And they head down to Egypt. And there they, they see Joseph. They don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. Remember, this is 20 years later. Probably 22 years later, Joseph has changed dramatically. He's in all the garb of, of the Egyptian honor uh, people, the, the, the honored of that society. And so he's, he's much different. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. He knows everything about these boys. Isn't that too a picture of salvation? That prior to faith in Christ, God knew everything about you, but you didn't know him. And so they go to Egypt, and they're confronted with Joseph. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And if you pick up the story in verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. This is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Joseph in that dream. Your brothers will bow down. Can you imagine 22 years later, and now it comes to fruition? Don't you think at that moment he was a bit overwhelmed by what he sees occurring right there? But he doesn't act on it. He, he really demonstrates incredible restraint. And in verse 7, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. You're going to find this over and over again. Joseph is going to deal very harshly with them. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You're spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. No, they're not. They're liars and murderers. We're just honest guys, just humble, honest guys. We wouldn't hurt a fly. Your servants are not spies. And he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our lands. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man, the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. They're living in denial. And Joseph said to them, it is as, as I said to you, you are spies. Guess what Joseph is doing with these brothers. He's harshly confronting them with the reality that they're sinners. He says, you guys are spies. You guys are enemies. And what do they say? No, we're not. We're honest guys. We're really good people. And Joseph says, no, you're not your spies. And they say, yeah, we're good people. He says, no, you're not your spies. And they kind of go this back and forth. But isn't that a good picture of all of us prior to faith in Christ? None of us wanted to admit our sin. Most people, you go out to share the gospel with somebody, and you say to them, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? I'd go to heaven. Why are you going to go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Listen to me. You're not. I don't care what mama said about you. You are a sinner all of us are guilty and we stand condemned before God in our sin. But we don't want to admit it. We want to hide it. We want to live in denial. And here Joseph is confronting them with the reality that you're sinners. I, this past week, um, a guy by the name of Bill Searcy passed away. Um, he played O-line for Alabama in the 70s under Bear Bryant. I think 76, 78, won a couple of national championships. But he got involved in all kinds of drugs and alcohol and messed up his life. And, uh, but then later, he, he, he had a, I think his son was 11 or 14. I was going back over it this morning. But his son, this teenage son in his life, was begging his dad to go to rehab. 
And his dad said, listen, son, I, I, it's too long to be away. I'm not ready to do that right now. I'm not going. And his son said to him, dad, what if you die? And his dad said, well, if I die, I'll just go to heaven. He said, dad, no, you won't. You're going to hell because you're a sinner. And you've never trusted in Christ. And he said it was like a two by four Slap this big old lineman upside the head. And for the first time, it took a 14-year-old boy to confront him and say, you are guilty. And sooner or later, all of us, if we're going to come to faith in Christ, have to own up to the reality that we are guilty and we are sinners. I was rereading this week because it reminded me of it. Uh, uh, Chuck Colson's uh, biography, Born Again. That was a man who thought he was great and powerful until a guy named Tom Phillips, the CEO of Raytheon, he went over to his house and guess what Tom looked at him? In the moment of weakness when his world was crumbling, he looked right at Chuck Colson. Everybody in Chuck Colson's life told him how good he was and he finally had an individual who looked him in the eyes and says, Chuck, you are guilty. You are a sinner. And for the first time, he was confronted with the reality of who he is. That's what's going on with these brothers. You're sinners. But they're still living in denial. We're good guys. So guess what he does? In verse 17, he put them together in prison. I'll just put you in a position of isolation. You know, so many people, this is how they come to faith in Christ. When they come to a moment of isolation, when they come to a place in their life when they're kind of left alone and they're forced to look within themselves and to see the depth of their own sin. It reminded me of Saul when he was struck blind. And for a three-day period of time, he had to look within himself and see the depth of his own sin. He puts these guys in isolation. And guess what begins to happen? You see it in verse 21. They said to one another, truly we're guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So they're beginning. Listen, they've got this shame and their guilt in their life, and they've been suppressing it, but it keeps coming up. And now in isolation, it's beginning to surface again in their life. They sense their guilt. They sense who they are. And so Joseph, what is he going to do? He's going to send them home. He binds up Simeon in front of them. I'm going to keep Simeon. You can go home. Simeon, you can have him back, but you got to come back with Benjamin. And so he sends them on their way, and he puts the money that they had brought to buy grain, he puts it back in their sacks. Why? Because Joseph wants them to know, you'll not earn this favor. Boy, all throughout this, you see pictures of salvation. When it comes to salvation, you don't do anything to contribute. The only thing that you do is sin. So you're not going to earn this. He puts the money back in the sacks, and they get down the road, and guess what happens? Look down in verse 27. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that... God has done to us. That's a key statement. What is this that God has done to us? It's the first time that they've mentioned God. See, the, the reality is, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that God has placed a knowledge of himself in every one of us. 
And what we choose to do in our sinfulness is to suppress that knowledge of God. We try to hold it down in our sin. We don't want to deal with it, but it keeps bubbling up. And here in isolation and solitude, as their guilt begins to surface, they also begin to have a recognition that there is a God. And God sees us. And if God sees us now, then God saw us back then. And God has seen what we have done, and we're in big trouble. You know, oftentimes when a person is beginning to feel conviction of sin, the first thing they have is really a fear of the judgment of God. See, when you begin to understand that God is holy and he sees all things and he knows all things and you begin to understand you're a sinner, you begin to think what? Uh Uh-oh. That's in the Hebrew. Uh Uh-oh. We in big trouble. And that's what these boys say right here. We're in big trouble because God has seen what we have done and he knows our guilt. And so they go home to daddy. They relay the story there at the end of chapter 42. They say, he he dealt harshly with us. He's got Simeon. The only way we can get Simeon back is if we take Benjamin, our youngest brother. And what is dad's reaction? No way. Not taking Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph. No way you're taking Benjamin to Egypt. So they go back home. They got a little food in their bellies. And they're probably thinking what? Maybe this will just all go away. We felt a little guilt. We know that God is watching. But maybe we just give it enough time. We can just continue on with our life. And God won't deal with this. And it will be okay. And the famine will end. And food will start coming. And Simeon, he's just a casualty of war. You know? Too bad. So bad for him. But we're going to just keep moving forward. But guess what? God's not going to let him off that easy. He's the hound of heaven. He just keeps reeling them in. And so the famine continues in verse 40, uh, chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was so severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy a little food. Dad says, it's getting bad. We're running low. You got to go back. And what do they say to him? Dad, we can go back, but we know this Egyptian official, and he is mean, and he is harsh, and he will kill us if we don't take Benjamin with us. And Dad says, I'm not going to let you do it. Until what happens? In verse 9 of chapter 43, Judah steps up. And you're beginning to see a change in these men's lives as God is humbling them, as God is breaking them. Judah steps up and says, I myself will be surety for him You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Judah says, I'll take him, and if something happens to the boy, you can take my life. You can take me. I'll lay down my life. You're beginning to see a change in this guy who is so hard, this guy who is so mean, this guy is so ruthless. God is beginning to break him. And so having heard from Judah, Jacob relents, all right, you can take Benjamin. So they go back to Egypt. They got Benjamin with them. And they come to Joseph in verse 16, chapter 43. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did just as Joseph had said and brought the men to Joseph's house. So they come in, they get scared, they're thinking he's on to us, 
He thinks we stole that money when the, when the money was found back in our sacks. So they go to the official and they say to him, hey, listen, we didn't take that money. Somehow it ended up in our sacks and we've brought it back. We didn't steal it. And the guy says, don't be afraid. It's okay. And Joseph prepares this big meal for him. And in verse 26, Joseph comes home for lunch and they brought into the house to him the present that means the brothers, which was in their hand, and bowed to the ground before him. This is the second time they bowed to the ground. And then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? It's amazing to me. Joseph keeps asking about Daddy Jacob. Why? Because in this story, you see a longing in Jacob just to be reunited with his father. Longs for that reunion. And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage again. He lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Boy, anybody that tells you that strong men don't cry have never read the word of God. And Joseph, he sees his brother Benjamin. He can't contain himself and he weeps. So they have this meal, verse 31. Then he washed his face and came out. He controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with Hebrews. For that's uh, loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright. And the young, youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in astonishment. Isn't this amazing? They don't know who Joseph is. And all of a sudden, this guy starts seating them according to their age. And what do they begin to think? Now, this is strange. This guy has a way of knowing everything about us, but we don't know him. And he deals with us honestly and harshly, and he's also extended kindness to us. But they don't understand who Joseph is. And so they enjoy this meal, and then he sends them on the way. And as he sends them on the way, he tells one of his officials to take his cup. It was a cup of divination. Joseph didn't use it, but he had one. It was common amongst the Egyptians. And he takes his cup of divination as they're leaving. He says, put it in Benjamin's sack. So he puts it in, in Benjamin's sack, and he sends them on down the road. And as they get a little ways down the road, he sends his army after them, guns drawn. And they come up on Joseph's brothers, and they say to him, what is this that you've done? You've stolen from the king, you ungrateful people. And Judah steps up and says, we didn't steal anything. In fact, if you find the cup in any of our sacks, whoever's sack it's found in, you can kill him. And so the officials, they start to look through the sacks and they work themselves all the way down to Benjamin and they open the sack and suddenly there's the cup of Joseph and it falls out. And guess what? They're forced with a decision. See, Joseph has put them in the identical situation that he was in. Now you have Benjamin, the favorite son. And they have a decision to make right here. These brothers, they can, they can throw Benjamin under the bus and just say, you can have him, and they can walk away scot-free. Or they can put themselves on the line for Benjamin in order to protect him. It's the same scenario that Joseph was in. And what does Joseph want to see? Boy, it looks like God's changed him, but I got to see it. 
Have they really changed? Will they deal differently now with Benjamin than they dealt with me? And you look down in verse 16. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? Boy, you want a good verse to memorize when it comes to a true understanding of what a sinner is who understands their need of salvation. It's an individual who comes before God and knows they're guilty and they know they have no leg to stand on. They know they have no words to justify themselves. They are guilty as charged. All that Judah knows, my only plea is for grace and mercy. My only hope is that this Joseph character would somehow be kind to us. He says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves. Both we, meaning all of us, and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. He pleads on behalf. In fact, you get down to verse 32. He says, For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I did not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. You see this radical transformation that has occurred in Judah's life and in the life of these brothers. These guys who really didn't care less about dad. They lied to dad about Joseph. They didn't care about the favorite son. They're mean and they're hurtful. And all of a sudden, they're pleading with Joseph on behalf of their father. We can't do this to our father. Don't make me go back home to Jacob and tell him that his youngest son is now dead. Don't put me in that position. We care too much about our dad and we care too much about this favorite son. He may not be our full-blooded brother, but we care about him. And I'm willing to put my life on the line for his sake. And what you're seeing here in Judah's life and in the life of these brothers is true repentance. See, repentance is not just feeling sorry about what you've done. Repentance is not the feeling of a moment. It's the radical turning of your life to the Lord and his ways. And that's what's happening here. It's not that they just feel sorry about what they've done to Joseph. No, their disposition and actions towards their father and their brother is so radically transformed. It's a reminder to me that when a person truly comes to the place of repentance and faith, you can see repentance. Repentance is always seen visibly in a transformed life. And it's all over these brothers. I mean, do you see in this narrative what's occurring here? Joseph has become the instrument of God to bring these brothers to repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why Joseph has been treating them so harshly. And see, sometimes God deals harshly with us. It's amazing to me, as you see in Scripture, sometimes a person, sometimes an individual will simply hear the truth and the reality of God's word and the truth of the gospel, and they'll just respond in repentance and faith. It appears to some extent that's what happened with Timothy. You remember when Paul writes to Timothy and says, you're continuing in the faith that was handed down to you from Lois and Eunice. He's saying to Timothy, it just appears that here was a young man who grew up in a godly home. His dad wasn't a Christian, but his mom and his grandmother were, and they just led him to faith in Christ, and he came to know the Lord at a young age. And many of you, some in this room are like me. You grew up in a godly home. You had godly parents who showed you Christ, and you heard the message of repentance and faith, and you trusted in Christ. And praise God. But there's a whole lot of you in this room that are much more like the prodigal son. That you knew the truth, but you walked away in disobedience and rebellion 
And you had to find yourself in a very difficult spot where it felt like your father was treating you very, very harshly to come to a place of realizing your sin and your need of a savior. And that's what God is doing with these brothers. He roughs them up, and sometimes that's what God does with us. These brothers, they just came down to get some grain. And all of a sudden, they're treated harshly. And they, they have no idea who's doing it. They just think this is some Egyptian official. But who was it? It was Joseph. And that's how it is in, in life. Some of you today, life is harsh. And it feels like you're being treated harshly for no reason. And it's drudging up a, a sense of shame and guilt in your life. And you wish you could just turn a corner and do some good deeds or take a pill and it would all go away. And yet you need to know this morning, it's quite frankly the Lord who is doing it. That he's seeking you long before you sought him. And one of the ways that he seeks us out is by coming to us in ways that appear harsh and mean. And some of you, that is exactly what's going on in your life right now. The circumstances of your life. You know, I meet so many people. You know what their testimony is? I was walking in life just doing whatever I wanted to do. I had guilt in my life, but I didn't want to deal with it until I went to the doctor. And I got a diagnosis. I've met men... In fact, we heard the testimony of a guy two weeks ago who's going to go plant churches in, in the New England states. He sat in office with our missions team, and he said, I was just an atheist walking in sin. I had no desire for God until one day my wife came to me and said, we're done. I'm out of here. And he said he was coaching his son's little league baseball team and they were playing a game and guess who was coaching the other little league team he lives over there in Greenwood guess who was coaching the team Pastor Sean Jones and Pastor Chris Williams and he had heard about Fellowship Greenwood and he heard about that church and he sought them out and said guys I got some trouble in my life could you guys help me and Sean met with him that week and told him, we can help you in a lot of ways, but the greatest need of your life right now is Jesus. And God used a very harsh event in this man's life to bring him to a place to understand the depth of his need and to trust in Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And his wife came to faith in Christ, they restored their marriage, and now they're going to go to the New England states and plant a church for the glory of Christ. Amen? But it started with a very harsh circumstance in their life that God brought upon them to bring them to the reality of who they are. Listen, that's some of you right now. You're going through something in your life and God's grabbing you by the shoulders and he's getting your attention. And you can go tell some people, you go out to some people and they say, well, go get some counseling. Listen to me this morning. If God is getting your attention, you may need some counseling later, but what you primarily need today is Jesus. You need to own up to your sin. You need to trust Christ and repent and know his forgiveness and his reconciliation. And as I was preparing this message this week, I just know in my heart there's some of you that you're either listening online today, you're in this room, or you're out there somewhere, and you've never confessed your sin. You've never been restored, and inwardly you're terrified. You would do just about anything to stop thinking about your guilt. And quite frankly, to stop thinking about God. 
But if God has his hold on you, listen to me this morning. You can run, but you can't hide. He is the hound of heaven. And sooner or later, you have to deal with him because he is the one you have primarily sinned against. He is the only one who can forgive our sins. And listen, there's nothing in the, mo- in the world that he wants to do more than forgive you. But he cannot forgive. He cannot bestow the fullness of his blessing of a relationship with him until you come to a place of repentance and faith. It's kind of like a parent. You can't spoil your children when they're disobedient. As a parent, we can't spoil our children. We have to change them. And listen to me this morning. God is far more interested in your holiness than your happiness. He's far more interested in your spiritual health than your physical health. And sometimes he will deal in our lives in very harsh ways to get our attention and draw us to himself. And it's his kindness that brings him to do these things. And if that's you, run to Jesus. One of the things that you see in Scripture is anybody who runs to Jesus with a heart of repentance and faith, he always receives them warmly. You know, as I was studying this, I thought of two individuals, both of whom felt guilt over their sin, but both had different ultimate destinations. Judas and Peter. Both of them came to an understanding that they were guilty. Both of them understood they were sinners. But only one of them ran to Jesus. For the life of me, I will never understand why Judas, everybody who ever came to Jesus, he saw it firsthand. Everybody who ever came to Jesus in repentance and faith, Jesus forgave them. But there was something that prevented Judas from coming to Jesus. And he never knew the restoration that Peter needed. Listen, if you're feeling a sense of guilt and shame, it's not enough just to feel regret. At some point, you've got to repent. And repent simply means to turn from your sin and turn towards Christ. Run to him and know his forgiveness. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the love that you have demonstrated to all of us. That even when we're, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you came for us. You were rich in mercy and grace. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning, they know they're guilty. They're sensing their guilt and their shame in their heart right now. And they've never confessed it. They've never run to you and trusted in Christ and him alone for salvation. God, I pray that you would so overwhelm them with your, with your love and your grace that was demonstrated on the cross that they couldn't help but run to you this morning to know that reconciliation, to know that freedom, to know that forgiveness, to know that their sins are as far as the east is from the west. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray this morning, because even we too can have a tendency to having come to faith and then walking in disobedience to getting off the path, and you have ways of getting our attention. 
God, if there's anybody here that's trusted in you, but they've gotten off that path, God, deal with this in whatever way that's necessary, but don't let us stray too far from you. God, I pray if there's anybody who's dealing with guilt and shame over a past sin, I pray that they would run to you this morning and know the forgiveness that you so freely provide to all who come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.